What's up, folks? Welcome back to the Whoop Podcast, where we sit down with the best of the best. I'm your host, Will Ahmed, founder and CEO of Whoop, and we're still on a mission to unlock human performance. As a reminder, you can get 15% off a Whoop membership if you use the code WILL, that's W-I-L-L, comes with the brand new Whoop 4.0, which is now shipping on demand. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and so we're continuing our podcast series on mental health. We had a great guest last week, Michael Phelps, household name, who you can find at whoop.com slash locker or wherever you listen to podcasts to catch that episode. Michael spent a lot of the conversation discussing his own mental health challenges, and that's pretty damn inspiring coming from one of the greatest athletes of all time. For this week's episode, Whoop VP of Performance, Kristen Holmes, is back, and she sits down with resilience expert, Dr. Molly Marty. This podcast focuses on practical ways that you can go about building your mental resilience and improving your emotional well-being. Dr. Marty has spent much of her career helping people and communities affected by trauma and loss and has dedicated a significant portion of her efforts to helping young people prepare for life's challenges. Before transitioning to that important work, Dr. Marty was a performance psychologist working with Olympians and other high-level athletes. Kristen and Dr. Marty discuss what resilience is and how it plays a key role in our mental health, how physiological health and mental health intersect, the importance of relationships and why they're the number one predictor of resilience, our core needs as human beings and how understanding them can improve our toolbox for life, how to manage stress and rest, and Dr. Marty explains her Thrive model for resiliency. Thrive standing for trusted relationships, high expectations, resilience skills, involvement, vision, and enrichment. That sounds like a pretty damn good list. Okay, without further ado, here are Kristen Holmes and Dr. Molly Marty. Dr. Molly Marty is a psychologist, researcher, lawyer, humanitarian, and parent. She is the founding CEO of World Maker International. Her research has looked at the factors driving group norms of hope, help-seeking, and resilience. She is also the author of two leadership books, and she has developed the Thrive Resilience Model, used globally in community trauma, recovery, military health, workplace, mental health, and school-based resilience. Molly? We go way back to our days at the University of Iowa. It's so wonderful to have you here today. Thank you. It's always a joy to be in your presence. And, you know, every time I'm with you, Kristen, I learn something and I'm looking forward to finding out what I learned today. And I think these conversations that that WHOOP is hosting are so important right now with the pandemic and the, you know, fallout. Uh, Even if you're dedicated to your peak performance and you're dedicated to learning and growing, we all have had missteps along the way. There's a lot going on. And so I'm just really excited for this conversation. Well, when we met at the University of Iowa, you were pursuing your PhD in psychology. But, you know, at the time, your work was really focused on examining the interconnectedness of our psychology and physiology and what those connections really mean for human performance. And it was, you know, at the time, totally innovative way of thinking about human performance. And I I just feel so fortunate that our paths crossed because, I mean, it totally changed the trajectory of of my life in, in so many profound ways and really inform everything I do today, that kind of foundation and platform that you created. And, you know, I just 
the, the fact that I was able to kind of join your mission at the, at the time and, and really help in developing some of these performance education frameworks, specifically in athletic settings, was just really wonderful. So, you know, I, I suppose those were kind of your roots. You know, how did you evolve from, you know, working with elite athletic performers and, you know, teaching at the, the university in, in psychology, you know, to kind of what you're doing today at Worldmaker? Yeah, I did not go looking to be the executive of a nonprofit. Uh, It really came knocking at my door uh, in the community where my husband and I were raising our three children. We had three teens who died uh, by suicide within six months' time. The last two were just two weeks apart, and we had more attempts. We had more kids going to the hospital. And so um, having to just continue to tell my kids, uh, you know, what was going on as we got those calls from the school and seeing what was needed at the school it just really laid itself on my heart. And so I made a decision to take one year, a step back from my work and uh, volunteer for a year to help stop that loss of life and to create uh, these multiple uh, layers of safety nets. I I thought that I could use my performance psych work. um, And I also knew that I had a lot to learn and a lot to teach. It's just kind of how I breathe as an educator. Uh, So I looked around the world at where we could learn. Um, And I settled on the Israel Trauma Coalition, uh, who's done uh, years of work in trauma and resilience. And we took a team over there and did a deep dive into this area and and just continued to learn more about um, the impacts of trauma and resilience. You know, I really thought, and in many ways, uh, when we worked together, I I thought that was resilience. And and it was. And yet, you know, I was working with the top one, two, three percent of performers. It was much more peak performance. And when you are looking at equipping people that get up every day in their own communities and they're dedicated to making a difference, right? These teachers or these mental health providers or um, human resources, right? All of these people. Um, And so I really have made it uh, my life's mission to continue to do that research, but get tools in their hands so that they can uh, do a better job of what they are are dedicated to doing. So maybe, you know, we can just dig into just defining resilience and and maybe you knew kind of indicated that, you know, resilience in its kind of earlier form as you were studying it wasn't really resilience in, in some way. So maybe just talk about where you saw that separation occur and and how do how do folks think about resilience just generally? Yeah, I mean, you know, now I would say resilience is not a solo sport. And, and you know, when I worked uh, with athletes, uh, it also we would look at at teams and culture and, and leadership top down. So all of those are very much part of the work that I continue to do. So we define resilience as the capacity to prepare for, adapt to, and grow through adversity. Uh, That word capacity is really important. It's not uh, just an ability or something you have or not. It can be grown. Um, It's based on a skill set that you can learn and and need to practice. And there is that possibility of thriving. There is that possibility of post-traumatic growth. There is that possibility of coming through even great adversities, lost trauma, in ways that our, our lives are more meaningful. We have newer or deeper perspectives. Uh, we have greater strengths in some ways. And so it's a it's a pretty broad definition. How do you advise folks to think about loss? And how is that different on a, at a community level versus an individual level? And maybe how do they blend together? Yeah, I think it's uh, important to distinguish between trauma and loss. And loss is a, a process. And then to normalize and support healthy grieving, um, th- there is a process that follows loss. And, you know, we don't want to rush in and, um, and I've seen some communities where people do this, we don't want to rush in after a loss and do measurements for PTSD, 
right? Because it, there is this natural process that we need to tend to. And we really look at kind of that long arc uh, of loss and how um, that unfolds over time and can be supported. Um, but I think that, um, you know, certainly the United States, Western societies, we, we really don't uh, normalize and support loss and grief and growth as a, a normal process of, of being human. But what you were saying about, you know, how that can clarify, I, I think that, you know, loss um, is, is often an invitation to not only say, who am I, you know, what impacts me, all that, but who do I want to be? You know, that self-ideal piece, um, it really can shine a light on that. So maybe we can talk about the model that you, you developed. So the Thrive Resilience model, um, you know, how is this really creating a framework for helping folks understand how to adapt and, and really understand these really difficult and potentially traumatic situations? Yeah, so the Thrive model, I started with uh, six relationship-based capacities and then uh, grew into adding five individual practices. Uh, so it's kind of the Thrive and the Specs. So THRIVE stands, it's an acronym. We scientists like our acronyms or educators. Um, (laughs) uh, So THRIVE is an acronym for trusted relationships, high expectations, resilience, leadership, involvement, vision, and enrichment. And so starting with trusted relationships, uh, relationships are the number one predictor of resilience. And I think that's something that I didn't fully understand when I was working solely in peak performance. And uh, so we do a lot around um, helping people, it's called the science of mattering as we teach it, helping people understand that their life has significance and that they're cared for. Um, One piece of mattering I really love, one of the, uh, in the assessment of mattering, it's uh, the extent to which people think about you when you're not there. And so uh, I've started this practice and you, you can communicate it with no shame, no guilt. But if someone uh, isn't going to be at a, a meeting or a function or, you know, they have something to, to communicate understanding, I, I really I understand. And yet I want you to know we're going to be less without you. And so to, to communicate that um, so that can kind of grease the wheels of, of those relationships. And then the area of trust, building trust is really interesting, too, because there's a different process in early uh, trust, and, and you really build uh, initial trust by being there, by showing up. It, it's the frequency of encounters. Um, and then over time, it, it's uh, supported and developed through care and concern and also reliability and competence. I don't want to get caught up in, in we'll only be on T and our, our hour will be done. So, yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> so uh, high expectations is about using uh, challenge for growth. And, and really uh, meeting people where they are and not just communicating expectations, but providing that support. Uh, resilience leadership uh, is about understanding our core shared human needs. And that is a piece I'd love to dig into a bit more. Just for high expectations, you just you mentioned challenge. Do you want to just double tap on kind of challenge versus threat and some of the neurobiology that's happening there? I think people need to understand what's actually, what, what is the difference and what is actually happening physiologically and in the brain that actually impacts how we respond to a, a specific situation. Yeah, yeah. So let's kind of put high expectations and resilience leadership together because that, okay. that's, you know, the core of yeah. understanding that that we have these human needs and one of those needs the primary need uh, is is safety and that's both physical safety and psychological safety but let's talk about these these four needs and how they come together so we have a need to feel safe we have a need for belonging 
right? We I talked a bit about mattering, right? We need to, to feel seen and accepted and, and affirmed. Uh, we're tribal beings, we're social beings. We have a need for competence, right? That, that sense of control and agency and to be able to, to grow uh, mastery. And then we have a need for purpose and that need for meaning and a positive expectation for the future, hope. Right? So we just really hone in on these four needs and we look at the flip sides. And so you're looking at that flip side of that need of safety and that's threat, right? If your need is violated, you're going to feel threatened. If your need for belonging is violated, you're going to feel isolated. If your need for competence isn't met, you're going to feel powerless. And if your need for purpose isn't met, you're going to feel useless. And when human beings are left feeling this way, when we're left feeling threatened, isolated, powerless, useless, it will erode resilience. It will erode well-being. And so we uh, do a lot of work on helping people understand that you have these needs, I have these needs, we all have, these are shared human needs. And so to getting those needs met in ourselves, but then also looking at what's going on with other people and not reacting to the behaviors that get triggered when these needs aren't met, because we will try to get these needs met and that can come at us in various ways. Not um, reacting when someone is expressing frustration or anger or not getting upset when you're like, oh, I've told you so many times, don't do that. Knock it off. It's not acceptable. You know, why are you doing that? Instead of reacting to the behaviors to go under that and get curious and like what need is being expressed here and how might I help meet it? So I think that's an important kind of foundation for that consideration of threat versus challenge. In the WHOOP journal, we actually track these core needs and how essential they are to, you know, when they're not met, it's going to have a, a direct impact on our physiology. And just understanding, again, this connection, I think, is really important. So we really encourage people to reflect, you know, what is my feeling of purpose? Do I have a sense of control? Do I have a sense of efficacy? What is my, you know, feelings of, of belonging? And I think maybe just talk briefly about the, the power of connecting to that and reflecting on it daily and how that actually builds resilience. Perceived resources must be higher than perceived demands. And if, if they flip and those demands are higher, so we have our resources, we have what, you know, what we have for social support, our knowledge, our skills, our tools, and then we have the demands, what's being uh, required of us, expected of us? Do we think that we have what it takes? And then that word perceives really important because we can do two things. We can bolster our resources and we also can work on our perceptions. And that's where coping skills come in and, um, and that framing um, and certainly emotion regulation skills. And it, we'll go back to the skills specifically and get really tactical there on the, on the resilient skills. Anything that you want to kind of talk about in terms of just enrichment and vision, kind of the, the final kind of two aspects to the Thrive uh, model? Vision, we're really focusing on values-based direction. Uh, we're focusing on goal setting and we're focusing on um, hope and that positive expectation for the future. What's like one exercise that you would recommend? You know, what do you think is kind of the the one that really seems to cement that feeling of just like, gosh, all right, you know, I feel really positive about the future. I feel like I have um, a more clear on my identity, more clear on how I want to move in the, around in this world. You know, what's the kind of that one exercise that you feel like is like the one that's that we could offer our members to like help them think about this? You know, I think realistic optimism, I think that as a mindset is helpful because if you're pessimistic, you're not even going to engage in that process of, of looking to the future. If you're overly optimistic, 
um, you do engage. The studies show that you engage, but but you <laughs> peter out because when those challenges hit, you just thought you didn't expect, you didn't plan for them. And so that realistic um, optimism and say, yeah, this is going to be tough. You know, that whole glass half full, glass half empty. There's a half a glass of water and, and it's going to empty. And when it empties, I'm going to find a way to refill it. And to take that approach, I think, can be a really, well, we know from the research, that's a very success mindset. Oftentimes, you know, this kind of emphasis on, you know, remaining positive can actually lead people to respond poorly to failure and may even actually contribute to conditions of depression. So maybe just talk a little bit more about just the difference, because I think we're always, we're just told, be positive, you know, and you can kind of talk yourself into a better future. But we know that that actually creates a lot of anxiety in people. So what is actually the, the best way to kind of approach the healthiest possible mindset? Yeah, and this is Marty Seligman's work from UPenn, and, and it's called realistic optimism. And so you do need to have that realistic piece, you engage in uh, the goal setting. Um, when I think of a hope, I, you know, I look at the P's. And so it, it is that possibility thinking. So that's where it starts. And then it's pathways. Um, and it's not just one pathway, but pathways, <laughs> because you're going to need plan B and C. Um, and what does that look like? And then perseverance skills. And so how do you keep moving when you hit those roadblocks? Because you've we will hit those roadblocks. And then people, right? Don't forget the fourth P. And, and that's, again, where that social support comes in. So that's how I kind of frame up hope building and, and goal accomplishment um, with that process. Yeah, I remember uh, one of the very first exercises I did with you uh, when we were working with uh, some of the teams at University of Iowa was writing your own obituary. That to me, I mean, I remember it to this day, what that whole process, how uncomfortable it actually made me feel and, and kind of how far away I was from being that person that I aspired to be. And I think doing that as a younger person, I mean, I think you should do it yearly. You know, I, I do it yearly um, as kind of part of my year-end review um, and kind of as I'm thinking about the new year. But I, I find that to be a, a really powerful exercise to just, all right, what is my identity? Who am I actually in this world? But who do I aspire to be? And how do I close that gap? Yeah, that can really um, work for a lot of people. Another, you know, if that doesn't work for you, for one of our listeners, another way that you can approach that too is, is through celebration. So think about your 75th birthday party. And in clarity, who is going to be there? And then you have them give toasts. And what are they going to say as, as they toast that glass to you? And, um, and I remember our team, when we were doing this, and then uh, one of our younger members of the team, when you know, we were putting that in one of our workbooks, um, because we give you know, different exercises. And, and she's like, wow, I just had a vision of your 75th birthday party, Molly, and it's going to be really fun. Oh, that's <laughs> so like, cute. Ah, I like that. <laughs> I love that. Um, but, yeah, but it's, it's another one, right? All of those people that you impact and to be thinking of them coming back and having that moment where they, you know, thank you, or they hold up a mirror to that. Um, and I don't think we do that enough, you know, that we don't hold up that mirror for ourselves. But that self-ideal is really what we're talking about. You know, we talk about the self-concept and self-esteem and self-expectancy, right, all of that. But but that self-concept is really made up of, of how we see ourselves and how we think others see us in the now and then also in the future. And that future point, I think, and I said this way, you know, 20 years ago or 15, whenever we were working together, right, I think it is the most underrated, um, underutilized piece 
uh, of this, you know, whether you call it values-based direction or you call it vision, um, it's, it's powerful to be creating that self-ideal in a way that it's it's living and breathing and it's truly a North Star in your life. All right, in enrichment, you know what, thanks for kind of hanging on vision there for a second. Get it. I think that's like just a, such an important piece and just one something tangible folks can take away, but uh, enrichment. Yeah, so enrichment is, like I said, when we you know prepare for, adapt to, and grow through, that growth piece is enrichment. That Just even that concept that we can use challenges and even loss, um, trauma, we can use these great adversities in life for growth, for finding our way through in um, a new and different way. And talk about an invitation, <laughs> a global pandemic. Yeah. <laughs> there's yeah, there's exactly. a, you know, a, really an invitation that has come to our door. And so I think normalizing this concept and providing uh, support for that process is, is more essential uh, now than ever. Let's talk about skills. So kind of the specs part of kind of the broader model. Um, and we could start with awareness. Um, this is obviously, I, I think, probably the most important entry point, And that's probably why you have it first. But, you know, kind of getting a baseline understanding of where you sit, I think both psychologically and physiologically. Once you understand that baseline, you kind of understand where the pathways for improvement potentially are or where you might be thinking about a situation incorrectly. Like just talk a little bit about how you think about that piece specifically and, and what we can take away from that. Yeah, I mean, it's difficult, if not impossible, to change something that we're not aware of, right? So we can't be transforming uh, behaviors and thoughts if we don't even know they're there. So it is essential, and and you referenced earlier, you know, why is it so important that we do this work daily, that we we have a process that we uh, go inward and that we are, are noticing, you know, what's what's going on. Um, but it, it can be really powerful for people to uh, use whatever tools to create a little more space between them and their thoughts, them and their emotions, them and their sensations, and to realize that they aren't their thoughts. And, and so that's that self-awareness piece, is, is creating that space and realizing um, that you have a lot of power, uh, you know, ability to choose and, and to control uh, certain aspects. And you don't have any ability around others, right? I think that that's also important. I think we create a lot of stress for ourselves when we're trying to control things that are not within our sphere of control. Uh, and so the way that I think of that, you know, is is kind of asking questions uh, and and I frame it up as involvement, uh, influence, and, or interaction, right? So taking the pandemic, you know, can I choose to participate or not? Right. Do, do I get to choose to be involved or not? Um, for the most part, it's no, here it is, right? And so if that answer is yes, then own it and, and explore what that looks like. But if it's a no, move on as quickly as you can to that next level. And, and it's okay to say, I don't like this. I wish it wasn't happening. I wouldn't wish it on anyone else, right? It doesn't mean you can never say anything bad about it, right? Process it um, in your way, but process it as quickly as you can so you can move on to the next. Uh, and that's influence, you know, can I shape some, can I shape this or can I shape some aspects of it? Again, with the pandemic, most of us don't have a lot of say over certainly the virus and how it uh, is going to unfold, but even mass mandates and travel. And But there are aspects that I'm sure we all can have a, a say over in, in our, our families or our workplaces or, you know, what that looks like. And then even if that answer is no, like, nope, I just, I don't have any uh, ability to shape this, then how do I interact? And that answer is always yes, right? We each have that ability to choose our 
focus and where we put our attention and our behaviors and our attitude. And so, you know, maybe that's, you know, where we hone in. But I think that that can help when you're doing that self-awareness to really figure out what is your level of interacting and, and truly embrace that. And let me just ask a question on that. Like I, you know, I always, I always say like 90% of my thoughts are like total nonsense, but it wasn't until I actually did the kind of internal work to be able to actually be more mindful of my thoughts that I recognized that my thoughts were nonsense. What are some tactical things that they can do to just be more aware of the thoughts and understand which ones do we hold on to, which one do we, do we not hold on to? And maybe it is around, okay, can I control this? Can I not control this? And the things that I can't control, I throw away. That's kind of how I how I view it. I, you know, I, I try not to fantasize or ruminate or hypothesize about stuff that might be happening in the future. Like I, I really try to throw all those away and just focus on the stuff that is immediate as, as here and now as possible and things that I can control. Any thoughts around just that process? Because I, I think it's really important. Again, if we start awareness being, again, you can't, it, it, you can't begin to transform anything if you don't understand where you're actually at. Yeah, there's two places I'd like to intersect with that. One is, is the rumination and one is, are these negative thoughts. It's, it's easy to do, right? You get in those circles, you go round and round, uh, you're overwhelmed, um, you're, you're focusing on things that either happened in the past or haven't happened yet in the future. And so to do a brain reset on that, um, what I recommend is using sensory input. And, and what's most effective is either visual or audio. Um, if you're doing audio, uh, close your eyes, right? So if I just do a um, sensory reset, I would close my eyes and then just pick up a sound in my environment you know, maybe it's the hum of the refrigerator or something with the equipment, something that's steady here, not a car that just drove by, right? But something steady in my environment. Or if I do visual, you know, I look at a piece of art. It's not just all of that art, but I hone in to where I'm looking at, you know, a leaf on the tree, right? I'm looking at these trees here. I'm not just taking in the sky and the trees and all that, but hone in with such focus that I, I'm taking it in as if I, you know, I'm just going to describe it in great detail to someone. If you do that 30 to 60 seconds, I think you're going to find and be surprised how short of attention span that you can do that. This is a, a skill. Uh, and, and, and I did something like this uh, in our performance psych work, right? So, but if you hone in, and then the key is to have it set up of what you want to be moving into. So for example, um, if I have a sort of writer's block, as they call it, right? And I, I'm just start to get in my head and, oh, this is horrible and it's you know, not gonna it work and I'm not getting anywhere. And I, so, so then the key would be, as soon as I come back out, right? As soon as I start to, start to take in more senses, I know, okay, I'm there. And then step into that task. And so I would just start clicking away. Uh, of what's coming through my writing, right? You want to step into where you're going. If you find you've been experiencing a lot of negativity, then maybe you want uh, a tablet and a pen next to you and you just step into writing a list of 10 things you're grateful for or a couple thank you notes. And so you you shift from that sensory reset to uh, I'm going to write, you know, who comes first to mind? Uh, I'm going to just tell them how much I appreciate them and write that. And so you're really greasing the wheels on, on that. And then you also, you know, you talked about these negative thoughts and I, I go to Marty Seligman's work again, we call it the three P's, right? Um, but scanning, like being a, a aware of those thoughts and then scanning to see if they're personal, if they're uh, pervasive and they're permanent. And if you're telling a story that this is about I, 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 you know, or it's an attribute of me versus no, it's something that happened, you know, and, and it's separate and, and get that space. 
if you're telling yourself that I not only, you know, suck at that, my whole life is a mess. Like it's, I, I not just bungle that activity, but nothing's working for me. Right. So you start to make that pervasive and you're using those words, nothing. And always that can be a really strong invitation to be pulling it back. And then that permanent, you know, not only did I bungle this, but I'm never you know, going to figure this out or, I, you know, this is going to just impact the rest of my life. Uh, and so that can really be helpful to run the three P's filter, personal, pervasive and permanent. And to bring yourself back to go, no, today's setback is today's setback. And I'm going to learn from it and turn the page. All right, let's talk a little bit about self-regulation. From my point of view, it's physiology generally first. I think we can access resilience much better if we have a nice foundation um, in terms of how we manage our physiology, how we think about our sleep behavior, and kind of within that, what's our exposure to light and to nature, and you know, what's the timing of that? You know, feeding windows and exercise timing and sleep-wake timing. You know, some of these kind of circadian behaviors I think impact our ability to regulate our emotions and our thoughts and our perceptions and things like that. So I'd love to kind of talk about how do you think about self-regulation more broadly inside this model, you know, what are you bringing to folks in terms of thinking about the physiology as a, as a gateway toward resilience? Yeah. I mean, sleep is, we all agree, right. Is that number one, you know, of moving you around and, and either increasing your capacity to be uh, processing what's coming at you or, or not and nutrition, hydration, you know, this is kind of getting into, you know, the, the wellness piece as well, right? So the, the big ones are the sleep, nutrition, hydration, and movement, um, but also looking uh, high on my list, social connection. You mentioned time in nature, you know, that's really important. Uh, creativity and play, learning, uh, you know, and then also looking at financial health, spiritual practices. So all of these things, I mean, taking really a holistic approach, but the reality is you can't uh, take, okay, here's 10 things that I know are really important and I'm going to do them all, right? So you have to prioritize and and start to get strategies and routines around that. And then you can continue to build. You know, I'm in agreement with that, that the physiological is a really powerful and important place to be starting and getting that as, as that foundation piece. And just maybe talk about that in the context of just impulse control and um, some of the things that we're trying to manage and regulate despite kind of some of our hardwired <laughs> tendencies. Yeah, I mean, I think it goes back to some of those foundational pieces we've talked about that if you're not attending to your uh, physiological health, then your resources are going like this. And and then if you had those demands, the, the space between those, you know, is is going to be an area where you're going to see um, certainly mental health impacts, um, and you're, and you're going to need some coping skills. Um, you're more likely to perceive things as, as threat. I, I think, uh, there's this process where you can uh, really learn how to protect your space. There's a lot of research that goes into this, but I've kind of created this acronym of D C B A. And I do that opposite of the ABCD because we're really pulling back into ourself, our power, um, our space. I see that a lot of people are taking on stuff that is not theirs to take on. And that stuff in 21st century life is coming at us more and more quickly. And so what I would say about emotion regulation and, and um, understanding that window of tolerance and staying within it, um, the first thing I do is I create distance and I use physical distance. So let me talk through this because I, I this uh, 
strategy would look different if I'm sitting at a conference table and we're in a meeting. Uh, there's things I, I would do. And then if I'm at, at, I'm at home or I'm on the phone or um, you really want to practice it full out and then you can create these shortcuts and heuristics. So the first is distance. So ideally, I'm standing up, I'm taking a step back, I'm creating that physical distance, which will support the psychological distance. Um, you know, if I'm, if I'm here, you're not even going to notice if I just lean back a little, right? So you can do that very subtly. But the first is create some distance. The second is to center yourself. It's really effective. Palms are very healing. Hand on the heart, we know from heart mass work and coherence, the hand on the heart, or it also can be very effective to touch your belly area, which is easier. If you're at a conference table, I can have one hand on my belly and one hand here and nobody you know, is knowing. If you create a triangle around your navel area, that can really help you center. Um, if I'm alone, I, I might do some swaying. Uh, that rocking motion we know is very soothing to um, settle down the stress response system. So distance, center, breathe, you know, an effective breath, you know, long in, short in, sigh, right? And so th that breath work. And then the A is anchoring, anchoring your space. Um, and, I, and I call this not my stuff, right? And so that's when you're anchoring in yourself. And when I'm alone, I might just say, not my stuff. Or, you know, it's not like, you know, it's not like this sucks for you, and, you know, back to, you know, but it's sending it back with, you know, love and you have your path and I have mine and that's not my path. And I actually started to create this tool, my emotion regulation tool. And I use it, you know, you know, I go into communities after suicides and shootings and natural disasters and write a lot of, a lot of trauma and loss and grief. Um, and, and I can't do the work that I am being called to do and what I'm capable of doing if I'm regulated um, when I'm taking on other people's stuff. And, and this really um, came to me early on in this work. It was the year I was doing the community uh, resilience work. We had lost kids and um, we had dinner and my son uh, was running late. He was running cross country. I got a call, the bus was running late. And so he wasn't going to be home for dinner. And so uh, we ate and uh, the girls and uh, my husband excused themselves and, and Nate's plate was still sitting there and I'm sitting there. And, and I just, I took on all of this grief of my friend who had lost her son by suicide. And I thought she's going to have this empty plate at her table for the rest of her life. Like she has an empty plate life. And I was just awash in this grief and stopping and taking on. And I don't know, Grace, uh, I, I had a moment where it was like, wait, 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 stop. This isn't yours. This isn't yours, right? What is yours? You, you are mothering these three kids. You are helping that mother through her grief. You're helping this community. You're a wife to, right? What is yours? And, and if you keep taking on other people's stuff, you're going to be less at what is yours. And so I did this dive into the research. I'm like, I need tools to not take on. And, and so that's, that's my not my stuff uh, piece of emotion regulation. Wow. I mean, that was just a masterclass in energy management. I mean, that's effectively kind of what we're all tasked with across the day is, is figuring out, okay, how do we manage our energy most effectively? I love that distance, center, breathe, and anchoring. Anchor. Oh, anchor. Yeah, grounding. You might think of that as grounding. Yeah. Yeah. So again, when yeah. I practice this I and I, you know, I, I sway and I, I feel my feet on the ground. You know, if I'm chair, I feel my butt on the chair. Like I am here. I'm in my space. I'm in that in my window of tolerance. I'm okay. 
now now I can continue. And we know the power of co-regulation and with mirror neurons. And all right, so what I'm doing is is directly affecting you, even if you're not aware of it, right? And and my my posture and my voice and my emotions and um, how I interact with others, uh, you know, and this can be even, you know, fictional characters or what we watch on TV. It can register and trigger parts of our brain as if we're experiencing it. It's really powerful. The most important thing you can do in building resilience in your family, in your work team and in our world is regulating yourself. That's, that's where it starts because then you can truly engage and, and show up. So we've got a couple more. Um, perseverance, kind of talk about that piece. And then uh, I think one specific question that I think is really interesting is a lot of folks don't have the intrinsic motivation. You know, that kind of, I think, sets the stage to allow them to kind of persevere. How does someone think about that? And and what, is, what does that connection actually look like between motivation and perseverance and um, what we kind of intrinsically have as a default? What would you say? How do people build perseverance? Yeah. I mean, we're all shaped so strongly by our early childhood experiences. And certainly if there's adversity, that's where that social you know, support comes in. And, and I, I think with social support, I think it's important to understand it's not just you know, give me a hug. Not, I don't have anything against hugs. I'm, I'm a hugger, right? That 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 personal uh, showing of care is a piece of it. But there's other types of social support, and and you know, one of those is informational, right? We need timely, relevant information, and that can be really important, especially after a crisis, um, you know, through the pandemic. Uh, and then we also have operational support, and and so sometimes we just need, you know, so think of think of informational as you know what you know, operational as what you do. So we need uh, practical hands-on guidance to help us accomplish those goals or to achieve what we want to achieve. And then we have those social supports, which we've been talking more about. And so that also can help. Um, maybe that person doesn't you know, really need that social support at that time, um, but they uh, need that information, you know, they don't, or operationally, they don't even know what it looks like. And, and I also think that we we're not very good at asking for help. It's a life skill. Uh, it's one that needs to be practiced because it feels awkward. And we know that those cultures that embrace that and support that are higher performing cultures. We know that if people give help, they tend to uh, report that they feel more socially supported, right? So there's that mutuality piece. Um, but for the people with that lower intrinsic motivation, there's a reason that that intrinsic motivation is low. And so you meet them where they are, and you you start to um, figure out what they need, and it may or may not be a hug. <laughs> uh, we'd love to hit on this this final one, and I think we can get you know really tactical here. But just rejuvenation, uh, you know, the regeneration of positive emotions and actions. How do you kind of define self care? Does this even fall into this bucket? You know, and, and why is that kind of a loaded term? Yeah, I mean, self care. We've stopped using it. We use personal wellness. Um, we have people who've gotten really angry, especially after trauma in communities. And, and they're like, you're stressing me out with all this emphasis on self-care. Like, stop it. I'm fine. Right. And so um, in military, there's groups that some people just it doesn't resonate. Right. And, and you can see why, you know, it has connotations of a spa day or, or um, selfish. Right. And, and so, you know, I go back to that really holistic um, mental, emotional, physical or in your case, physical, mental, emotional, um, <laughs> well-being, well right? However you say it, that holistic um, and, and you know, the stress-rest uh, cycles, that that's how we grow. We grow by being stressed 
Um, but that stress, you know, and I guess we didn't make this point when we were talking about the difference between trauma and challenge, right? But but it that stress needs to feel manageable to us, that we have some sense of control. It needs to feel moderate. It needs to feel predictable. I mean, that's the distinction between trauma and challenge that can be used for growth. And so, you know, that's a, a key part of that. You know, our, our just go-to of a, a reset, you know, we've been talking kind of about using sensory for reset or using the three Ps for a cognitive reset. It's just a body reset. I mean, what you can do in two to three minutes of, of just t- closing your eyes, taking a few breaths, noticing tension, start top of your head, you know, your forehead, your cheeks, your chin down, shoulders are a big one. You know, take that deep breath and try to increase the distance between your ears and your shoulders. You're doing a couple things there, straightening the spine and releasing tension. Work down, work down, work down, and then rest in that. And, and just, you know, you, you, you've led enough groups in this, you see that just a few minutes of this and then you invite them to kind of wiggle their hands and toes and come back to it, you're at a whole different level. The room, you can feel it. It's like, oh, that, that feels better. This is available to us anytime throughout our day. Yeah. When we go back to kind of this core psychological need of just control, you know, like we can control our breath for the most part. We can, you know, control these kind of mind-body scan kind of exercises, you know, we can, it's available to us to your point at all times, you know, and I I think when we consider this concept of rejuvenation or personal wellness, I I think it's, it's kind of this thing that we don't want to just wait until something traumatic happens to then try to deploy personal wellness. Like it's just, it's a habit like anything. And these are skills that we need to develop. And, and it's, and I think it's about proactively managing the relationship between stress and rest throughout the day. And Molly, I learned this from you 20 some years ago, you know, is like, you know, I had my little cell and I was mapping my stress and my rest. I was, yeah. And I I was measuring it. I was was identifying, I was measuring it and I was, you know, choosing, okay, what's the appropriate kind of rest in proportion to the amount of stress I just incurred? Was it physiological stress? Was it psychological stress to this day? You know I mean? I still, that's how I talk about it. That's how I think about it. I use it in my research. I, you know, it's just such a core piece to really how I think about every moment from one moment to the next, like maybe just talk through how people can really think about identifying stress and then um, how to think about actually mapping appropriate levels of rest so we can actually build resilience ongoing and and be prepared for when, you know, life eventually is going to fall apart on us. It just, it just will happen. Preparing our our mind and our body for that as proactively as possible is really, I think, the path forward. So yeah, so we're talking about stress, rest, and we're talking about recovery. So the ideal is that we are stressing mentally, physically, emotionally, and that we build in that appropriate amount uh, so that we can continue to grow. Then something happens, right? Trauma impacts, impacts on uh, attachment or safety, or and we go down below our baseline. And so that is really what we're talking about, you know, in the military context, but we all experience this, um, where we need to really focus on that recovery plan and strategy to get back up to baseline to then grow. Um, as far as the impact of stress, I, I really simplify everything. And I, I think of you might remember this, Kristen, where I had these little toys and you press a button and they fall yeah. down and it can be a bear yeah. or a clown, right? <laughs> Whatever. Ooh, right. You, that stick man, right? Have a stick man center of your mind and just check in stick person. Um, how far am I leaning? Right. And if that stick person is flat, then you likely need 
to get flat, right? You might need that 90 minute nap or, you know, more sleep or, um, and, and if it's just leaning a little, um, then, you know, what do you do to get back up? And if you do this throughout your day, there's so much, uh, value in and power of being intentional and mindful with that. And so you continue to recoup that energy throughout the day. And that I think is the difference. I remember you experiencing that it makes a difference of you going home at night and just having nothing left. And then you have right hours of, of work to do, or you want to be in a relationship and give something to it. And it's like, pfft. and and so when you really uh, play with that and master that. What's, what's your experience? We haven't really talked about stress rest cycles in 15 years. Oh my God. I mean, I, I, yeah, for me, literally after every, you know, 90 minute block of work or whatever, I, you know, I'll go out for a little walk. I'll do some, you know, mindful walking You know, I'll breathe, but I am just so deliberate, so intentional about building in rest, doing that for consistently for 15 years. You know, I mean, ever since I learned, you know, about the power of really building resilience through proactively managing um, the relationship between your stress and your rest. So I think for me, it's a daily practice. You know, I try to talk to anyone who listens to me. <laughs> I try to I try to let them know the power. You know, when I don't do it, I mean, I see, and I've done kind of these personal experiments where, you know, I see a marked degradation in my sleep efficiency, my sleep onset latency, so my ability to fall asleep. I see huge declines in my heart rate variability and increases in my resting heart rate. So I think for me, it it really does, I think, enable me to sustain, you know, decent levels of, you know, alertness throughout the day, um, you know, be able to be present and engaged. And I think to your point, most importantly, you know, when it's time to make dinner for my, you know, two beautiful kids at the end of the day, like, I can be there, I can be present. And obviously, it's never, it's not perfect like that every single day. But I'm trying to be the average of, of my behaviors. And I think on average, you know, it's pretty darn good. And I really credit it probably if I were to distill it down to one single thing. Um, it's that one, like just the proactive management of stress rest. I think it bleeds into every other thing in my life and has this just downstream effect into a lot of other behaviors. So yeah, and I have, I have really you to thank for that. Well, I stand on the shoulders of others. So Molly, where can people find you and all the incredible work that you're doing um, with individuals and communities? Yeah, so I'm available at Molly, M-O-L-L-I-E, Marty, M-A-R-T-I.com. And Worldmaker is worldmakerinternational.org. Following me, uh, we both have newsletters. We stagger them every couple of weeks. So following me is more of where my head is with the science and, and research and also practices and individual experiences. And then Worldmaker is really um, putting out that Thrive model and those supports. Mm. Uh, and we are on the various uh, social channels as well. Gosh, well, this has really been a, a beautiful conversation. I have learned so much, as always, whenever I talk to you. What I loved about this conversation, I think it was really tactical. And I think there's so many takeaways. And I'm going to listen to this multiple times. But, you know, you gave us all sorts of really tangible strategies um, that I think we can use to manage our energy and, you know, connect with others and just providing a really clear framework on how we need to actually be applying our effort, you know, if we're, if we're really trying to build individual and community resilience. So uh, this is really powerful, Molly. Thank you. You're very welcome. And uh, yeah, keep building that, you know, real-time uh, resilience toolkit, I think is what I think of it as. Um, we need these tools and it's not just one tool is the tool or, you know, it really depends on the situation and where we are. 
humans are complex. Uh, they fascinate me <laughs> still to this day. I know. I know when you met, I used to stand in front of the rooms working with, with peak performers and athletes and corporate athletes. And I, I just like, oh, the light in this room, the, the potentiality that, you know, it would just take my breath away. And, and I experienced that, you know, in every community I work with, with every child I, I work with. Uh, it's, it's really extraordinary. Keep adding to that toolkit um, because we, we need these tools and, and practice them. That's how we'll continue to grow. We'll do our best. Thank you to Dr. Molly Marty for coming on the Whoop podcast. A reminder, you can use the code WILL to get 15% off a Whoop membership that comes with the new Whoop 4.0 shipping on demand. Uh, please review the podcast, subscribe to the podcast. You can check us out on social at Whoop at Will Ahmed. And with that, I wish you a phenomenal and healthy week.